Okay, good morning. Glad you're here. Glad you made it in. Last week, we read the first half of Psalm 23, that passage that you just heard in the video. It's the most famous psalm in the entire scripture. And we discussed how this poem that David wrote, it basically promises that if we will recognize God as the good shepherd, and we'll kind of embrace our role as the sheep of his flock, then we will experience peace and God will provide for everything that we truly need. You just heard those words. Psalm 23 presents like this picture-perfect postcard kind of scene, right? Green meadows, peaceful running streams, a caring shepherd, and carefree sheep. But look, life really ain't that way, is it? (laughs) At least not my life. I don't know what your life is like. But even when I read Psalm 23, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't describe a whole lot of my days. Maybe some days and times in my life have been that way, but usually not so much. It doesn't really seem that way. I know there are some of you, when you heard these words last week, you were like, hey, that's really nice imagery. Those are pretty words, and I can appreciate them for sure. But like, I don't really feel like my life is so calm and serene. My situation doesn't seem very idyllic. I'm not frolicking through green meadows, you know? I'm not drinking from peaceful mountain streams. It feels like chaos. It feels like threats. It feels like everything is constantly falling apart. Listen, life with God doesn't always feel serene and safe. It really doesn't. And so what ends up happening is when you read passages like Psalm 23 and you kind of get this picture of like what it could be, how good it could be. And then you look at your own situation. You're like, something ain't right here. And what ends up happening is that most people will assume, oh, I've done something wrong. This is my fault. Because like, I see what it takes, and this is what God promises, but I'm not experiencing that, and so I must be missing the mark. I must be failing. I must have sin in my life. God must not like me as much as he likes other people. And we kind of spin out in our head. The other thing that often happens is people don't doubt themselves, they doubt the scripture. There are a lot of people who are like, listen, bro, I've done everything God asked me to do, okay? I've taken my faith seriously for a decade, and yet I don't feel like I'm in Psalm 23. I feel like I'm going through hell right now, and so maybe the promise is the one that should be doubted. Maybe the promise is the one that is not actually accurate. But can I tell you something? The Bible is so incredibly clear that following God does not make all your problems go away. I don't know who told you that. It wasn't me because I've never preached that, okay? The Bible tells us again and again, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, following God doesn't make your problems go away. All right, we've got all these um, stories of people who walked with God and yet still had to face real tragedies, heartache, heartbreak in their life. Think about Job for a moment, right? The Bible tells us Job was a completely righteous man. He did everything he was supposed to do, and yet he lost everything. Man, it's a powerful story. I'm excited to tell you guys that this summer in July, we're going to be preaching a six-week series walking through the book of Job. It's going to be so good. The reason I love it is because it answers so many questions that people have about why bad things happen to good people. But you know what? It raises like five times as many questions. This is how you know you're reading the Bible correctly. It's like you get one answer, but you also get three new questions. That's the way the scripture works, and it's part of the beauty of our faith. We think about a guy like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and he talked about the fact that he had a health ailment. He had some kind of diagnosis, some sort of fault, problem inside of his body that really affected him, impacted him every single day. 
In the New Testament, he calls it a thorn in his flesh. This wasn't something that was just kind of irritating every so often. It's not like he had a hangnail or something like that. There was something seriously wrong with this guy, and it impacted his ability to live day to day. So here's a man who's given his entire life to be a missionary, going around the world to preach the gospel and start churches, and God won't heal him. Life with God is not always peaceful and easy. I don't know who says it is, but it's definitely not the Bible. For goodness sake, Jesus himself, our Savior, who walked as closely with God as anybody ever could, he ended up being mocked, rejected, beaten, and eventually murdered, okay? Now, this tension is here in Psalm 23, because what happens with Psalm 23 is that we read it, and we focus on kind of the pastoral, like very serene, beautiful images, and we ignore some of the other things that are going on. There is an acknowledgement here in Psalm 23, particularly the last half of this passage, that life ain't always easy when you're following God, that sometimes things go wrong, and sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's other people's fault, and sometimes you don't even know whose fault it is. There is this sense in Psalm 23, a realness and a rawness for what it means to live with God every day. You can read Psalm 23 and just get this idea that, you know, following God is plastic, it's fake, it's like too perfect, but if you read Psalm 23 closely, you're going to see an honesty here, and, and that honesty, I think you're going to resonate with it. Like, if you were here last week and you're like, that's all good, but it hasn't been in my experience, I think you're really going to connect with what we're going to read today, because this, um, this honesty is actually what makes Psalm 23 so valuable and enduring, okay? So let me show you what I mean here. We're actually just going to pick up right in the middle. You heard uh, verses one through three already in the video that we watched to kick things off. So we're going to jump in in verse four. We're going to read a line that we already read last week, and then we'll pick up some new stuff, okay? Verse four, David says this, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Now, look, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to break this first down, but I do want to point out one thing that I didn't say last week. Notice David says, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not if. He doesn't say, well, if by chance one day I might actually get to a dark place in life. No, he says, when it is a certainty, it's a guarantee that you are going to feel at some times like you are walking through a valley. There is going to be a sense in which the shadow of death has fallen over your marriage, your finances, your relationship with God, your business, your dreams, whatever it might be. It is a guarantee. It's going to happen. From the very beginning, David says, when I walk through the darkest valley, that's when I'm going to trust that you're with me. Now, if Psalm 23 is like so peaceful and God is protecting and nothing bad could ever happen, why is your boy walking through the dark valley anyway? Like, why would the shepherd lead him so close to the mountain or the valley of death? What David is telling us here is that it's not quite as perfect as it might have seemed on first reading. Okay, he goes on to say, your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. So here David is describing two instruments or implements that a shepherd would carry with him. The first one is called the rod and the rod is essentially protection for the flock. It was a club, it was a cudgel, it was a baseball bat essentially that the shepherd would carry. And he carried it around for two reasons. The first is when you're out in the wilderness with a flock of sheep in the Middle East, there are predators that wanna come and snatch up your sheep and run off with them. There are wolves that will try to sneak in, grab a sheep, and get away before the shepherd can pull out his uh, rod, his club, go over there and beat the heck out of that thing and save the sheep's life. So the rod existed to protect the sheep from the predators that existed. But there was another threat. 
There were not only these animal predators, there were actually people that would try to come in and snatch up a sheaf. Like, you know, in, in North America, like in Western times, we'd call them cattle rustlers, right? But these are sheep stealers. And they didn't, they didn't brand their sheep or anything like that. So if I could sneak in, grab one of your sheep, bring it back over to my sheep, you're not going to know if it's my sheep, your sheep, who can say, right? So there was a real threat, both from animal predators and from people who would try to come in. And so the shepherd would carry around the club every single day and he would knock somebody upside the head if that's what needed to happen. Second instrument that he carried around was the staff, as David calls it. We would call it a shepherd's cane or a crook. Kind of looks like a candy cane. It's, you know, it's like a big tall stick and it's got a bit of a hook on the end. Now the rod, as I said, was for protection. The staff is for guidance. Okay, So all these sheep are wandering around. Shepherd will use that uh, staff to reach out and kind of nudge sheep. You know, you're going the wrong way. You're getting off track here. Stay with the herd. He would kind of force them back that way. Or like we talked about last week, shepherd, uh, sheep rather, they have this kind of crazy thing. They're, they're just so dumb. They don't understand the danger that they're in a good bit of the time. And so they'll get really close to like a cliff edge. And we talked about how sometimes uh, the cliff edge will crumble and they'll fall to their death. And so the shepherd's like, well, I need to go get that sheep, but I'm not trying to get close to the edge. And so he'll reach out with that staff. That's why it has a hook on it and he'll grab them and pull them back so that they're both safe. Sometimes sheep will fall down in like a hole or a little divot or something that they can't get out of. And so rather than a shepherd reaching down and picking up this dirty old sheep, he'll use his cane, scoop it up, pick it up and get it back on level ground. Okay. So we've got two instruments here. We've got the rod, which is for protection. And then we've got the staff, which is for guidance. Now think about that staff for a moment. This is really important because it's easy to understand the the rod. Okay. We understand there are these kind of threats that he's got to fight off and stuff like that. The only reason that the staff exists, the only reason it's necessary is because the sheep has a tendency to wander places it shouldn't go. That's the only reason it's necessary. Every single sheep has it. Listen, the sheep is in a peaceful green meadow. It is next to the clearest mountain stream, like the best drinking water you could ever be near. But the sheep is like, I don't know, that grass over there kind of looks good. Let's go check it out. And it will wander away from the protection and provision that it already has in search of something else. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That sounds like me. I don't know if it sounds like you, but it definitely sounds like me. There is some sort of like internal push inside of me to always chase something else, to think the grass is greener on the other side of the hill, to think that I could find something better when the whole time I've got a shepherd that's there, that's caring for me, that's protecting me and all of these different things. So the shepherd has to actively direct and protect his sheep. And these two instruments speak to that. So catch this now. The Psalm highlights that the shepherd wants to create this perfect oasis for the flock. But there are two forces working against that. The first is there are external threats from those who wish to harm the sheep. And then there is an internal restlessness inside of the sheep that causes them to always want to get away from how good they actually have it. So we're going to see these two things, the external threat and the internal impulse to run away. We're going to see those come up again here in the scripture. But we're starting to get a sense that although it sounded real nice in verses one to three, maybe there's a little bit of drama and danger that's happening in this passage. So starting in verse number five, okay, David's going to do this weird thing where like he starts to 
sometimes drop his metaphor a little bit. So he's been talking about himself as a sheep and God as the shepherd and stuff like that. But he's going to drop the metaphor and sometimes he's going to be talking about himself as a man and then sometimes he's going to be talking about God as still as the shepherd. I'll kind of point that out as we go. Verse five, one of the most famous lines in the entire Bible, arguably uh, the, the first or second most famous line here in Psalm 23, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. Even if you're not a Bible person, you've heard this before. Man, it's in more rap songs than I can possibly recall. You prepare a a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. Now look again, notice David calls out the presence of enemies around him. So there, there are threats. David knows those threats are there. David, when he writes this, he's actually facing literal enemies. He says, there are enemies in my presence, and he's thinking about actual people. So I told you last week that David, although he was a shepherd when he was a young boy, and we often think, oh, he must have wrote this shepherd psalm during his shepherd days. That's almost certainly not what's true. He probably wrote this particular psalm when he was much older in life. And when he was, um, when he was a grown man, he was uh, the king of the country of Israel. And it's very possible, maybe even likely, that he wrote this in one of the most difficult seasons of his entire life. Let me recount the story for you very, very quickly. David was king. He had a bunch of wives and he had a bunch of kids because that's how they did it back then. Okay. A bunch of wives, a bunch of kids. And one of his sons sexually assaults one of his daughters. It's like real ugly stuff here. Okay. And David is like, oh my gosh, my daughter who I love. She needs justice, but oh my gosh, my son, I don't want to put him to death or put him to exile. Like I'm trapped. What should I do? And he ends up freezing and doing nothing. It's not a good moment for King David. So his sons start saying, well, if dad's not going to do anything about this, we sure as heck will. His third oldest son was a dude named Absalom and Absalom decides to kill his half brother that assaulted his sister. So David's like, Oh, geez, I probably should have intervened before that happened. Things got really weird. Absalom fled from the family. And a period of time later, Absalom starts thinking to himself, if my dad can't even handle his business in his own family, why does he think he can rule an entire country? You know who would be a much better king than my dad? me. And so he anoints himself. He chooses himself as king instead of his dad. He raises up an army and he starts a civil war against his own father. It was almost certainly in that time that David writes Psalm 23, in the presence of my enemies. Like he's thinking of literal enemies, maybe even his own family, which just, I don't know, man, that's even hard to fathom. But what I want you to focus on for just a moment is what David says he's doing in the presence of his enemies. Like what do we normally do if we're in the presence of our enemies? If we're surrounded by people who don't like us, people who are a threat, people who are about to attack us, what are we going to do? We're going to fight. You better believe we're going to put up our dukes. We're going to hitch up our pants. We're going to take off our t-shirt and we're going to throw down. That's how I fight. I don't know how you do it, but that's what I would do, okay? It ain't pretty, but I win. Anyway, (laughs) David says, rather than fight, I'm going to feast. In the presence of my enemies, when the obvious response is to fight, I'm going to choose to feast. Now, no, no, stay with me. David is not saying that there's never a time to fight. 
This, he, he is going to go to war against his son Absalom. His army is going to kill his son and kill all of the rebel soldiers. This is the same dude that cut off the head of Goliath with a sword. He knows there's a time to fight, but he knows that you shouldn't fight first. You should feast first. You should fellowship first. You should get into God's presence first before you ever go into battle. Now, the reason that you feast before you fight is not so that you can get God's blessing, like you got that special charge up, so now you're going to go win the battle. No, it's so that God can build in you the character and the discernment to know when it's time to fight or not, who you should be fighting or not, why you should be fighting or not. That's the reason that you feast before you fight. There are some of you that are here today and you feel like you're in a war. You feel like you're in a battle. You're ready to fight. You're like, well, I guess the only option for me left is to fight against my ex or to fight with my landlord or to fight against the court system. Whatever you got going on, I don't really know. But I'm just saying, you may, you may feel the need to fight. And look, perhaps you will, but can I encourage you to feast first? Fellowship with God first. Get close to the Father first, even if it's in the presence of your enemies. Yeah, but they're getting closer and the attacks are more likely and I might not be prepared. Feast before you fight and then let God decide what needs to happen from that point on. David says, in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a feast for me. He goes on to say here in the second half of verse number five, he says, you anoint my head with oil. David is referencing like a very specific, like a literal event that happened in his life when he was a young boy. So we, we kind of learn about David, first time we ever hear anything about him. It's a super interesting story. He's the youngest kid in a real big family, okay? And so he's got this dad named Jesse. He's got a whole bunch of brothers. He's the youngest. He's overlooked. He's picked on. He's bullied. He's scrawny. You know, he's just like everything that you probably wouldn't want to be in an ancient family. And so one day, a prophet named Samuel is told by God, you're going to go find this dude named Jesse, and one of his sons is going to be the next king of Israel. You're going to choose him and anoint him as the new king. And so... uh, uh, Samuel walks up to Jesse and he says, hey, one of your sons is going to be the new king. And his Jesse, uh, David's dad is like, cool, I know exactly which one. So he brings out his firstborn son. He's tall, he's handsome, he's muscular, he's a leading man. You know what I'm saying? He's like, behold, the new king. And Samuel's like, nah, not him. God's saying not him. And so he's like, okay, okay, well, you go over here. Let me get my second oldest son. And so he grabs the second boy and he brings him up there. And he's like, he's real smart, okay? Like he's so intelligent, he would lead so well. Sam, no, not him. Brings the third one out. He's so funny. He's, gonna, he's got charisma. He's gonna be a dip. Nope, not him, okay? So they go through all the sons and Samuel's like, I don't know what's going on here. God told me that one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel, but it's not any of these. Like, I don't, do you have a secret son somewhere? He's kidding. And Jesse says, oh, well, I mean, I've got the youngest son, but he's like out in the field dealing with the sheep. He's a shepherd. Surely it's not him. I didn't even think it was worth bringing him in. Samuel's like, go get that boy. So he goes out, he gets him, brings him back. And the moment Samuel lays eyes on him, God says, he's the one. The little kid, the left out, the runt, the one that nobody took seriously. They didn't even invite him to the anointing ceremony. And God said, yeah, that's the one. So check this out. This is so crazy good. God chooses him. He anoints him. And David is saying here in the moment in Psalm 23, he's like, I know I don't deserve where I'm at. 
I'm not here because I'm the strong one or the smart one or the funny one or the best one. I'm here because God chose me. He anointed me. He poured oil over my head. And for some crazy reason, he selected me for this beautiful and special kind of purpose. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's great for David, but like, I'm not special. God hasn't chosen me. I'm not a king. David was a king. I'm a cashier at Loblaws. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm a stay-at-home parent. I don't know. I don't feel like I have been chosen necessarily for anything great. But can I just remind you what 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse 9 says? 1 Peter 2, 9 says this, you are a chosen people. You've been chosen by God. You are royalty. That's what the scripture says. You're like, no, I'm not royal. Yes, you are. You absolutely are. I don't know if you've ever, um, like there are these websites online that you can go through and you can look up the history of your last name. Or there are like places like in tourist traps and stuff where you can look up the history of your last name. And uh, I always do this. I do it every single time, okay? I'm always like, what's the history of the Sueza clan? Because I'm sure somewhere way back in the past, we must have been nobility. We must have had land. We must have had a family crest. Because like right now in modern times, we're truck drivers and food stamp recipients and trailer park people, you know what I'm saying? But I'm sure somewhere back there, we must have had like some really good family history, right? And I've looked up my name on these websites more times than I can count. And you know what? There ain't a single Suiza that's ever been knighted. There ain't a single Suiza that's owned a parcel of land. There ain't a single Suiza. We are nobody and nothing, but God says, I'm royalty. All it takes to be royalty is you've got to be a son or a daughter of a king. That's it. That's all it takes. And the scripture says that you, through Jesus, are a son or a daughter of the king. So you need to think about yourself in the way that 1 Peter 2.9 describes you. You are chosen. You are royalty. You are a priest. That means you have direct access to God. You don't need some fool like me to mediate your relationship with God and tell you what God says. You can hear from God yourself. You are a holy nation. You are God's treasured possession. What was true of David in Psalm 23 is true of every one of you in Jesus. Whoo, that's good. So maybe like David, you can say, my cup overflows with blessings. I love, like life overflowing is pre- it's present so many times in the scriptures. Not just John 10, 10, man. It's throughout this whole thing. God wants his people to overflow with blessings. Too many people are not experiencing life overflowing. They're experiencing life overwhelming. It's the pressure of finances and parenting and work and keeping up appearances and social media and the news cycle, right? It just leaves you feeling pressed. It leaves you feeling crushed. It leaves you feeling overwhelmed. But God has something better in store for his people. He intends, like David, for your cup to overflow with goodness, overflow with blessing, overflow with grace, overflow with patience, overflow with love, overflow with resources. That's God's desire. Listen, when you follow God, the burdens of life still exist, but they pale in comparison to the blessings of heaven. David says, my cup overflows with blessings. There, there are some folks here, and, and like the best thing for you to do today would be to just stop and count your blessings. Because it's so easy to get caught up on like the size of somebody else's cup or how much wine is flowing out of theirs, and you're like, oh, mine, you know. No, every one of us in this room, like our cup is overflowing with blessings. Okay, 
We got to keep moving fast because we got a lot of ground to cover. Finally here in, in verse number six, David's going to start to wrap up this psalm. He concludes this part by saying, surely goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. Can you just lock in for a moment on the fact that my guy did not say, maybe goodness and unfailing love will follow me all the days of my life. Hopefully, goodness and unfailing. I'm, I'm really, I'm trying God, I'm trusting, maybe just you might, please, it's conditional, I'm hopeful. No, he says, surely, I am confident of this. There will be goodness and unfailing love from God for me every single day. Surely, these things will pursue me all the days of my life. Now, when we read this last line, there's kind of, I don't know, there's just like our, our eyes and our hearts are drawn to the words goodness and unfailing love. That's what we want to talk about because we like those things. And yeah, I need a little more goodness and I'm glad to know God has unfailing love for me. That's what I want to talk about. But instead of talking about those things, I want to talk for just a moment about that word pursue. That's a really strange word for David to use here. Why does he say goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life? Why doesn't he just say, I'll have them? Or I'm going to be with God all the days of my life so I know that they're going to be right with me. No, he says they're going to pursue me. And I think what David's doing, the reason he chooses this very specific word is it's a callback to what he's saying earlier about this internal restlessness that exists in every one of us as sheep. We always are trying to run away. Thank God he's constantly pursuing his sheep. Do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, this is how you know if somebody's a good shepherd or not. They're willing to leave the 99 to go pursue, chase down, rescue, save, redeem, and bring back the one who walked away. Thank God his goodness and unfailing love are pursuing me every day because I'm always running. I'm always chasing something else. I'm always thinking I'm going to find something better and more fulfilling. But God loves his sheep too much to ever let them get away. He loves you too much to ever give up on you. He's never going to be like, you know what? It's too far and they keep running away. I'm going to just let them go. The wolves going to have them. Never. God is like the shepherd who will go chase down sheep. Did you know Luke tells us that God is like a woman who loses a very valuable coin inside of her house and she'll turn the whole place upside down until she finds that one thing that she's looking for. God is like a father whose son ran away and gave up, turned his back on the family and the father waits day after day after day ready to receive his prodigal child back home. Surely God's goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. There are some of you that are here today and you're like the sheep that's been running for weeks, months, years, decades in your life. You've managed to wander so far away from the green pastures that God has for you. You're so far away from the calm waters. You're like way out here in the desert. You're looking around. You're like, there ain't a single stalk of grass. How did I get here? The water is dirty. It's not moving. It smells funky. I'm tired of being out here all by myself. Luckily, you have a, a good shepherd a father who has not given up on you. You have not run too far. For goodness sake, you're back in church today. There is hope for you yet, okay? If you would just turn back around and say, shepherd, come get me. I want to come home. I want to be a part of the flock. Use that crook, snatch me up, bring me back to my people. If you would say yes to God, then you would be welcomed back because his goodness and unfailing love, they're going to pursue you all the days of your life. There's some of you that are running and you're kind of enjoying running right now. It's like you, you are having fun. 
I just want you to know God's never going to give up on you. That's how much he loves you. Now, you could take that and say, well, I might as well just keep running then because I can go do what I want to do, and then eventually he'll be there when I want to turn back. Listen, if you understood how much the shepherd loved you, you wouldn't do that to him, and you wouldn't do that to yourself. You, you would say, what, he loves me that much? That much? That, that's the person that I want to trust my life with. That's the shepherd that I want to follow. He says, surely, goodness and unfailing love will follow me all the days of my life. Then David wraps it up here. He says that he will live in the house of the Lord forever. I really like this because, um, you know, the psalm starts on such a beautiful note. It's like a high note, right? It's like, oh, peaceful and, you know, meadows and happy sheep. And it's like so nice. And then we get deeper into it and you're like, mm, I don't know, there are threats and they're always trying to run away and like there's enemies and like it's not as nice. But then it ends on such a positive note. You know what David essentially says? He says, there's going to be a day in which I'm no longer a sheep in the field, but that I am fully a son in the house. And do you know, when the shepherd brings you into his house, there are no more threats from the outside that you need to worry about. When was the last time a wolf broke into your house? Doesn't happen, right? Because the house is a place of protection. Not only that, but the, the thieves can't get in anymore, right? Doors are shut, locked, windows are closed, and the owner of the home is on guard. So when you get welcomed into the house of God, you don't have to worry about those external threats that used to hound you and chase you every single day. Then, if you're welcomed into the house, you're given your own bedroom, you're given your own place at the table, given your own closet full of clothes, like it's nice to be in God's house, right? You're not going to have the same impulse to run anymore. And you won't have to escape out trying to find greener pastures. You're like, man, it does not get any better than this. This is what I was made for. David says, when you realize how wonderful it is to be welcomed into God's family, to be given a place inside of his home, you will not want to leave anymore. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word forever doesn't mean until I die. It means long after death. It means for eternity. God will continue to be your shepherd and he will guide and care for and protect you just as he always has. Amen and amen. My goodness, you guys, this is good stuff. Like if this doesn't warm your heart, um, if this doesn't want you, like make you want to draw closer to God, you are dead inside. Like you need to get your heart checked. You, like I'm serious. Okay, so real quick, how do we summarize Psalm 23? It speaks with honesty about following God. It should be super idyllic, but it's definitely not. The dangerousness of the world is real. The restlessness of our hearts is real. But thankfully, the faithfulness of the shepherd is even more real than any of those things. So before we take communion, the Lord's Supper together, I want to give you the opportunity to receive God into your life, to embrace your place in his house, to say, I want to be his sheep. I'm willing to be his son or daughter. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of feeling threatened. I'm tired of feeling pressed and overwhelmed. I want the peace, 
the forgiveness, the hope, and the purpose that David talks about here in Psalm 23. And you know what? All you have to do is ask for it. That's how good our God is. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to buy it. All you have to do is say yes, and he promises he'll give it to you. So I'm going to invite everybody in the room. Please bow your head, close your eyes for just a moment. And if you say, that's me, I'm the sheep that's been wandering. I'm tired of being alone in a desert place. So today I'm inviting Jesus into my life. I'm going to just invite you to pray this prayer to Jesus in your heart after me. Dear Lord, I've been running away for too long. Today, I return to you as the shepherd and savior of my soul. Thank you for loving me and pursuing me and not letting me get away. From this day forward, God, help me to walk with you and to experience life overflowing with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My friends, if you prayed that prayer today for the first time or the first time maybe that you meant it, like this is such a momentous occasion. This is the beginning, the starting point of a relationship with God and we wanna help you. We're gonna talk to you in just a minute or two about how we might be able to help you in your spiritual journey. But before we go, there's kind of one more layer that I wanna show you and I promise it's not gonna be long and it's gonna end with what will be the most meaningful moment of our time together this morning. You know, Psalm 23 uh, on face, like at its like surface level is about David, the shepherd and his experiences, relationship with God. It's very nice and pretty and cool, that's good for this dude that lived 3,000 years ago, right? But then we go a deeper level and we're like, okay, well, it's not just about David. It's actually about all of us. Like his story is our story. The promises that God made to him are some of the same promises that God makes to us through Jesus, his son. So there's like another level to this. But hey, if you go all the way down, the best level, the richest layer to this is not David, the shepherd boy. It's not me and you as modern day Christians. I believe, and in fact, scholars throughout history have shown or known that Psalm 23 is actually supposed to point our hearts and minds towards Jesus himself. Psalm 23 is what we call a messianic passage, messianic passage. What that means is it's an Old Testament story. Old Testament is everything that happened before the birth of Christ. New Testament are the things that happened after the birth. So in the Old Testament, before Jesus ever came along, there are people that said stuff, they did stuff, they experienced stuff. And if you're reading scriptures closely, you find out that like, oh, Jesus said and did and experienced a lot of those exact same things. But it's almost like he took them to another level. Like that has to be intentional, right? Yes, it is. These are called messianic passages. They point us from the Old Testament to the New Testament in which Jesus is the one who finally and fully fulfills these patterns, shadows, types, sorts of things that we're seeing. So Psalm 23 is actually in the middle of three Psalms. So it's Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. And they're all messianic Psalms. Psalm 22 is the Psalm that Jesus quotes when he's hanging on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a direct quote from Psalm 22. Here in Psalm 23, I'm going to show you how Jesus is present. This points towards Jesus, particularly on the last day of his life. And then you read Psalm 24, and it's a, a, a psalm of victory about the Messiah, right? So Psalm 22 talks about the cross. Psalm 23 talks about the crook. Psalm 24 talks about the crown. This is a really important section of scripture here. And if we were to only look 
For just a moment at verse 5, you would see Jesus so clearly if you just paid attention. So in verse 5, we read three statements, okay? You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Let's start with that middle one. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. David is, of course, referencing that anointing that we talked about a moment ago. But do you know, when we talk about Jesus Christ... Christ is not his last name. Did you know that? A lot of people like Jesus Christ, like Dan Swayze, Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, no, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. So more appropriately, we might say Jesus the Christ. He is the Christ. Now, Christ is a Greek word. That's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, okay? And both of those words, Messiah and Christ, mean the same thing. Anointed, chosen, selected, set apart. David says, God, you've anointed me. But then we look at Jesus, and Jesus was the anointed one. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He's the one that God chose. David was set aside for a special purpose. Jesus was set apart for the most special purpose that anybody ever could be, the the redemption of all of humanity. Not only that, but in the same way that David was literally anointed with oil, did you guys know that, uh, that David was literally anointed with oil? Did you know that Jesus was also literally anointed with oil during his life. There's one time he's having dinner and he's like chilling and talking with a bunch of religious people. And the Bible says that uh, a, a woman of ill repute, okay, this is like the Bible's way of saying a lady who had a lot of lovers. She comes in, it's true. She comes in, she's got an expensive jar of perfume oil. And the Bible says she opens it up in the middle of, of dinner. She dumps that oil over the head of Jesus, just kind of ruined the meal, but Jesus loved it. He was literally anointed, chosen, set apart, spiritual anointed by God. He was physically anointed by this woman in this beautiful act of worship. And so David was anointed, yes, but our thoughts are supposed to go immediately to the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah himself. Now, think about David's line. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. If there's a pattern here, then what was true of David, we should also see as being true of Jesus himself. So was there ever a time in which Jesus had a meal, a feast in the presence of his enemies? Most definitely. In the last supper, Jesus literally has a meal, a feast with Judas, the man who's going to betray him just a couple hours later. Isn't that wild? Surrounded by his friends and one enemy, Jesus didn't say, Judas, 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 I know what's about to go down. You better get out of here right now. Nope. He let Judas participate in the feast, knowing full well what was about to come. See, Jesus had a feast in the presence of his enemies, literally. And oh man, it gets so deep. Like I, I can't even go through all the layers and this is kind of nerdy stuff. So some of you guys will appreciate it. Some of you won't. This, this word in Psalm 23, it literally says, God, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That word table, it actually occurs elsewhere in the Old Testament and it's used to describe a specific table that existed in the temple and the tabernacle. This table held a basket and in the basket was a loaf of bread that was called the show bread. It was baked fresh every day. It was put in the temple and it was meant to symbolize God's presence and his nourishment for his people every single day. What did Jesus say about himself in the book of John? I am the bread of life. On the night that he's crucified, surrounded by his followers and his enemies, what did he share with them? Bread. David says, my cup overflows with blessings. Of course, on the 
the, the night of the Last Supper, Jesus takes a cup full of wine. He shares it with his disciples and he tells them, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of the world's sins. The word that Jesus uses there, poured out, it literally means to hemorrhage. It means to bleed profusely. It means to bleed nonstop until it's all gone. In the same way that David's cup overflowed with blessings, Jesus says, my blood is flowing out of my body to make that blessing possible. The connections between these two things are so beautiful and so rich that there's no way we could read Psalm 23, verse 5, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows with blessings. There is no way that I could read that verse and us not take the Lord's Supper together. So when you came in today, you should have been given a little communion package. It looks just like this. There's bread, there's juice inside. And just as Jesus ate bread and drank the fruit of the vine with his disciples, we're going to do the same thing today in honor of him. Now, I want to say this quickly. If you're here as a follower of God and you have felt distant, overwhelmed, pressed, crushed, beat down to the point of wanting to give up, you may have heard a voice in your ear saying, you know what, you need answers or you're going to have to walk away. You need new friendships or you're going to have to give up. You need a new church. You need whatever it might be, right? Can I tell you what you probably need is to just feast with the Lord. There is something so special that happens when we partake of communion together. It's why we don't do it every week or even every month. We do it four to six times a year because I don't ever want it to lose its power and its meaning for us. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of God, I'll say lovingly, this is nothing more than a snack to you. And it's not even a very tasty snack. I'll just be straight with you. Okay? You can't commune with a God you don't believe in. You can't remember the sacrifice of a Savior you reject. So like, you can eat it and drink it if you want to, but it's nothing but a little appetizer before you go to lunch. So maybe if you're a follower or if you're not a follower of God, the best thing for you might be to not partake because this is a special and sacred moment for people that are honoring Jesus and the sacrifice that he's made. Now look, take or don't take, I don't care. Nobody's gonna come slap it out of your hand. That's between you and God. But I just want you to know this is a meaningful moment for those of us that have accepted Christ. So you'll, you'll see that there are two tabs here. I'm going to invite you to peel back the top layer, the thin cellophane. You'll get access to the bread. We call it bread. It's unleavened bread. It doesn't have yeast in it. So it's technically a cracker. Where are my beggars at? You know what I'm talking about. It's a cracker is really what it is. And that's because in the Bible, yeast represents sin. And Jesus was without sin. His body was bread that was broken for us, but it was sinless bread. It's bread without yeast. So we eat it as a cracker. It's not meant to be tasty. It's meant to remind you that Jesus' body was broken for you so that you would be confident that God's presence is always with you and that he will nourish you every single day. Jesus, today we remember and honor your sacrifice, your body broken for us. carefully peel back the second tab there, you'll get access to the juice. It's grape juice, not wine. It's okay. I checked. God says cool. 
And the night that Jesus shared the cup with his disciples, he very specifically said to them, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out to pay for your sins. As you drink this cup today, I want you to realize that your sins were many. They were overwhelming. You were never going to be able to pay them off. But because the good shepherd loved you so much, he was willing to lay down his own life so that sheep like you and me could be rescued. Jesus, today we drink from the cup and thank you that our sins are forgiven because of the covenant that you've sealed with your blood. In the New Testament, the apostles are thinking through the implications of Jesus as the good shepherd. And there's a verse that I'm gonna read as a benediction it's just a blessing over you. I just want you to listen. It'll be on screen, but I want you to listen to this word. The author of the book of Hebrews says this. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. After Jesus was resurrected, man, he wasn't the good shepherd anymore. He is the great shepherd of your soul. He ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory be to him forever and ever. Amen.